Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Frankly Speaking podcast at Friends of Europe. I'm your host, Chris Kermitis Courtney, Senior Fellow for Peace, Security, and Defense at Friends of Europe. And this week, we'll be talking about the devastating earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria three weeks ago, causing over 50,000 deaths and leaving more than one and a half million people homeless. We're joined this week by our guest, Birgitta bischoff Abison. Regional Director for the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent, and of course, as always, joined by a senior fellow for Peace, Security, and Defense at Friends of Europe, Dr. Jamie Shea. So, so happy to have you both on. I, of course, um, will start with our guest, Birgitta. So if I may, uh, for you, Birgitta, what is the situation now, and how are the IFRC and other uh, humanitarian organizations helping on the ground? Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. The situation on the ground is devastating, as you said. This is the largest earthquake uh, Turkey and Syria has faced in over a century. And as you have seen in all the news, uh, like production, that millions have been affected across uh, the the uh, Turkish-Syrian border. And for the survivors, the journey to recovery has just started. I can't believe even you said it three weeks ago, but it that is what it is. So the devastating is the devastation is monumental. And what we're doing, I mean, we are working through our partner Turkish Red Crescent, and they have been since the very early days uh, through their mobile clinics, been providing people uh, with temporary shelter. They have been giving uh, health services. Uh, lots of first aid and medicines. Uh, many are having chronic diseases already before any earthquake and, and they, they are in need of the medicines. We have more than 5,000 Turkish staff, uh, Turkish Red Crescent staff and volunteers that are continuing to provide people that are affected with food, with access to clean water and giving them also essential relief supplies. And more recently, only this week, we have started also to be able to provide cash, which is like a way of, of uh, very dignified support where people can can go and buy exactly what they need in the areas where the market is, is up and running again, maybe not fully, but, uh, but partially. And then I also want to mention that uh, a really critical component of the needs right now relate to mental health. Uh, and we have teams that are out there talking to uh, the the survivors uh, that are having immense negative mental health and psychosocial impact of this earthquake. Many have seen family members, uh, they have seen friends, uh, neighbors, uh, either dying or not being found in in the in the remains uh, of of the buildings and and it's terribly uh, negatively impacting uh, the people that are still in the area and then us as uh, as IFRC we are currently bringing in lots of international support to enhance the delivery and also the coordination across the borders to supply these very localized efforts we are lucky to have the Turkish Red Crescent in country and uh, not only in country, but also present in all the 11 affected districts and also uh, throughout uh, the, the country. What we have seen is that the disaster has prompted like a huge wave of global solidarity and also dozens of Red Cross and Crescent societies have offered technical support. And we have seen that 
I think it's around 60 national societies around the, the globe have started domestic fundraising campaigns to, to be in support of, uh, of, of the earthquake um, survivors. Thank you so much, Virginia. It, uh, it, it's something to hear that, uh, you know, not only have we seen sort of a global outpouring of, of help and response to from people all over the world for Ukraine, but to see it for Turkey as well. And, and is that, does that go for Syria as well? Are we seeing the same level of uh, support coming in from around the world? Or is it all going through sort of one central, you know, through, through the UN or through uh, your organization? So, I mean, the support that is coming in, it, it comes in, in many forms and shapes. So uh, some is coming through uh, like donations, cash supply, and uh, some from from these public campaigns, uh, some is coming from governments, and also uh, we have seen some national societies that are, are providing, uh, like uh, in what do you call it, in kind support. So, but uh, there is a very big, you can say, machinery that starts when you have an earthquake like this, where uh, humanitarian organizations like the one I'm representing, the IFRC, uh, as well as you mentioned NGOs and, and the UN system, we, we have a very big coordination uh, going on to make sure that we don't like step on each other's toes, but that we make the most relevant assistance where it is needed. And, uh, and there is like a lot of pre-arranged, pre-agreed coordination mechanisms that we are then applying when uh, we have uh, a disaster of this scale. So money is coming in, experts are coming in, uh, in-kind support is coming in, but uh, always uh, as coordinated as possible and always as pre-agreed as possible so that we have uh, the, the support uh, according to standards so that it uh, becomes both fair assistance but also that it becomes um, like right for the situation we're in. I mean, you, you have seen how cold it was in Turkey. I was in Turkey during the first week of the quake. It was freezing cold in the night. So you cannot just supply tents. It has to be tents to a certain quality with heating, et cetera, because else it, it has no value. So, so that is part of what is going on in, in that coordination mechanism that all the different sectors have standards for what we are providing. And we try not to, uh, to do the same. Thank you so much for that. Now let's turn to Jamie. I think uh, so. Jamie, we've heard a bit about what uh, the UN system and others are doing to to provide support uh, in the response here to this devastating earthquake. But uh, what about the EU and, and NATO? What are what kind of support are they providing? What does that look like? So over to you, Jamie. Well, uh, both uh, Chris, uh, uh, as you begin to know all too well, both the EU and NATO have their disaster. Uh, relief and management sort of bodies uh, are obviously echo the Office for Humanitarian uh, Affairs uh, in the EU, uh, in the Commission, um, and uh, it's uh, well versed, uh, like NATO, in coordinating uh, the needs of Turkey and then matching those needs to availability within the member states when it comes to things like the heated tents that Begitta was talking about, uh, when it comes to food, when it comes to medical aid, when it comes to rescue teams. Uh, and who then has got the airlift capability uh, to fly those uh, uh, assets quickly into uh, uh, to to Turkey? 
Um, NATO, of course, uh, uh, has Turkey as a member state, which means that NATO has the use of a series of uh, air bases uh, like at the Abakta, uh, uh, Inchilik, and so on in Turkey, uh, and a great deal of infrastructure, which makes flying in uh, uh, emergency aid uh, relatively uh, simple. So it's really a question of to what degree um, NATO and the EU add value, because uh, as you know, Chris, very well, uh, all of the nations have their well-honed disaster uh, relief um, uh, uh, rescue uh, services that can respond very quickly and many went off uh, immediately uh, naturally in fact one from Greece very early on uh, the immediate neighbor uh, of Turkey and they don't necessarily have to sort of go through NATO or go through the EU to to do that uh, they can do it purely on a bilateral uh, basis but of course uh, as you get into a more complicated set of requirements uh, then I think NATO and the EU will come into their own. Let me give you two examples of what I mean here. Number one is rubble. Um, the One of the biggest issues, of course, is to clear uh, the rubble away before you start having with asbestos and chemicals uh, in concrete, uh, leaking into the water table, leaking into the food supply, causing disease and contamination of the soil. And there is an unbelievable uh, amount of rubble. Uh, it's estimated that the 170-odd thousand buildings that have collapsed uh, thus far have produced uh, uh, anywhere uh, in the uh, region of 116 to 210 million tonnes of rubble, uh, compared with 13 million for the previous earthquake of 1999, which everybody's comparing this with. And uh, you may recall, Chris, that you know, many years ago, back in 2006, NATO sent its NATO response force to Kashmir in Pakistan uh, on that occasion to help the Pakistani army free up uh, road access by clearing rubble uh, off the road. And uh, so you can see that, you know, when it comes to clearing rubble as quickly as possible, because otherwise reconstruction can't start. And Erdogan has promised that he's going to rebuild all of this in one year, which sounds ambitious, but that's his pledge. When it comes, you know, to connecting water supplies, when it comes to connecting electricity, to restoring telecommunications, uh, to deal with water, to deal with sewage, you know, everything you need to sort of get back up, uh, then uh, the Turkish military may well need the support of NATO militaries, um, uh, either through NATO or the EU. Uh, I suppose Turkey would have a choice. Turkey is a NATO member, so might gravitate more towards NATO in the first instance here although the EU will offer its support. But you can see a role for the military in terms of, you know, if I can use the expression, you know, putting Humpty Dumpty back together again, which is going to be quite an enormous uh, uh, task. Uh, and there you're going to have to have some kind of coordination. Now, on the EU side, looking, you know, beyond the immediate, you know, search and rescue, which is now, I understand, finished, although miraculously uh, people were pulled out of the rubble alive 10 days after the earthquake struck, which is, which is absolutely incredible. So uh, all of the congratulations to those brave teams that managed to to do that but when you you know get beyond the immediate search and rescue phase um and you're dealing with the reconstruction then of course the eu can provide essential funding and uh, ursula von der leyen the eu commission president together with the swedish presidency and uh, uh, current presidency of the eu very quickly the day after the earthquake offered to host um, um, a donors conference uh, because uh, all of this is going to cost money. The World Bank, Chris, this week estimated that uh, the damage, not the reconstruction, just the damage uh, was uh, uh, estimated at $34.2 billion. And the World Bank estimates that reconstruction is double that. So you're talking already, you know, $70, $80 billion 
uh, for reconstruction. It could be more, particularly as you know, the reconstruction is going to have to be built to earthquake standards in terms of design and materials. So clearly that is going to be uh, an element where President Erdogan is going to be looking for international support. And the EU, by offering to host a donors conference, I think is taking the lead. So in other words, yes, uh, important coordination of immediate supplies to the extent that Turkey uses those uh, uh, bodies in the immediate. But I see down the road when you get to you know the, the, the rubble clearance and the uh, return of vital supplies, uh, obviously reopening schools, reopening social services and all of this uh, uh, to get into the reconstruction effort, then uh, the assets that the, the two big organizations in Brussels have to offer will probably be uh, important uh, for, for Turkey to have access to. Thank you so much, Jamie. And, and, and listening to both of you and reading about this, uh, the impacts here, the numbers are just breathtaking. I mean, the impact, the, the sheer scale of the, the disaster and the number of people impacted is just breathtaking. And, and, I have to wonder how, you know, what are the, what kind of, back to you for this one, Jamie, is what are the ramifications will this be having for President Erdogan at home and his government? And then how does this impact the upcoming Turkish elections? Well, well, that's, as we used to call it, the $64,000 question, Chris. Uh, Well, uh, Erdogan uh, has been criticized by the opposition, which I suppose is normal uh, in a pre-election period. Uh, for um, a slow response. And indeed, this past weekend, Chris, you and I are both a big uh, soccer fans. This past weekend, you would have picked up that when the fans at uh, 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 at uh, Fenerbahce and uh, Bazikas, you know, the two big football teams in Istanbul, uh, when the fans went to the game, uh, they they booed uh, Erdogan and staged protests at what they considered to be that uh, slow response. Now, um, uh, Erdogan has since, you know, been playing catch up. Uh, he's made several visits to the impacted region. As I've said, he's promised reconstruction in a year. Uh, 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 he's uh, uh, apologized, which is not something that you often hear President Erdogan do uh, for some of the uh, initial mishaps uh, in the, in being present uh, and uh, obviously uh, uh, delivering immediate uh, aid. Um, and uh, he has uh, obviously uh, now engaged, you know, the Turkish government fully uh, behind the, the 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 effort. I mean, I think he's mindful of the fact that this could be an electoral liability uh, uh, for him. At a time, Chris, when he was already in trouble over Turkish inflation, about 30% a year, it's very, very high, uh, the, the collapsing exchange rate and, and some of the economic problems as, as well. And of course, those economic problems are going to make Erdogan even more keen, I think, to get as much international uh, aid as, uh, as, 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 as possible. I mean, he will obviously, by trying to get reconstruction kick-started quickly, um, try to then get some of the credit for the response. There's no doubt about that. Uh, we'll see to what extent that's going to be possible uh, uh, for him. And the Turkish elections may have to be postponed. I mean, at the moment, the Turks have sent some government teams down to the affected regions to see, is it possible to have an election there? Because this affects about 25% of, of Turkish territory in all. And and uh, about 20 million people uh, are not homeless, 1.5 million homeless, but about 20 million are impacted by the situation in terms of jobs, you know, ability to get around livelihoods and so on. So uh, the question is, is, can you go ahead with an election where 
you know, one quarter of the country would be de facto not really be able to participate. And so there's talk of the elections maybe being pushed back to June, the original date away from May the 14th. It's not very clear uh, at the uh, at, at the moment. The other thing, of course, is that, you know, the, it's difficult for Erdogan to escape all of the blame for the fact that so many of these buildings, even very modern ones, which were apparently cl- uh, claiming to be earthquake proof, collapsed. Uh, you know, the, the AK party uh, has been in power in Turkey now for tw- the best part of 20 years. So it's very difficult when you've been in power that long to blame all of the problems on the previous government. That's been that's been you. And and, and we all know that clearly, uh, you know, uh, after 1999, when Turkey tightened up its construction uh, rules uh, and there was even a tax to pay for uh, earthquake resilience. Uh, we know that the Turkey may have had good laws regarding you know, the quality of concrete or the number of iron bars that you put in buildings, how you make them earthquake resistant. But we know very well that there, a lot of those rules were not particularly enforced. Government officials clearly turned a blind eye. And indeed, there were even official amnesties for some of the construction companies from uh, time to time. Now, Erdogan, I think, is mindful of that, the need to be seen to be cracking down. And 184 184 Turkish entrepreneurs have been arrested. One was literally pulled off of a plane at Istanbul Airport uh, and may face trial for uh, criminal negligence when it comes to uh, c- construction. So, uh, but but it's interesting to see uh, as we go towards the elections. Number one, uh, will the opposition be able to sort of play with that? Uh, this is a national, as Begitta was saying, this is a national tragedy for Turkey. And so, the, on, on the one hand, the opposition may well want to give Erdogan a hard time, but you know, with this outpouring of national solidarity and sympathy, that may not be so easy for the opposition. Erdogan is an uncanny politician, Chris, as you know better than I, uh, and uh, after a difficult start, may well be able to make a recovery. Um, and if he can pull in a lot of money from abroad and, and really show that, you know, he's going to be able to deliver reconstruction quickly, then maybe he will outlive this in a way that didn't look very likely during the uh, the first week of the of, of the two quakes. Thank you so much, Jamie. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, think it, looking at the, the earthquake and looking at any place these happens, it's always sort of a mandatory test of governance. And, uh, and, and some of what you brought in up about building codes and enforcing building codes it tells us a lot about sort of the enforcement of government governance previously. Um, but I want to come back to you, Birgitta, uh, because I, I, you've been on the ground in Turkey. You're going back in tomorrow. You know what is still need. What is needed most at this point? What should the international community? What can the international community bring that's needed most right now? No, absolutely. I just uh, I wanted to just comment on uh, on on one thing around the affected area before, if I may. Uh, just to mention that uh, Turkey is hosting uh, one of the largest population of, uh, of refugees in, in Europe. And uh, they have around uh, probably more than 5 million people, uh, especially coming from, from Syria, but also other places. And and we have for a long time been working together with the uh, uh with ECHO uh, that was also mentioned before by by Jamie uh, to provide uh, cash uh, assistance to uh, to uh, a number of them, uh, 1.6 million of of Syrians and others in the country, and and that is. Uh, 
at the moment the biggest humanitarian cash program that that exists, uh, and and that program will now allow us to transform it into uh, to cash provisions for uh, the affected population. So it it has proven really um, effectful that we already had this going, uh, and and could then transform it into something that that can go to the uh, affected population. Also, I wanted to mention that uh, in the 10, uh, 11 affected provinces about uh, 1.6 million of uh, refugees were, were already living and uh, and we think that maybe around 800,000 refugees were living in this area and they they are already considered quite vulnerable and and now with the earthquake they will be even more in need of uh, of assistance so i just wanted to mention that that the area is also having a, a particularly vulnerable population but right now, what what is uh, is needed now? Three three weeks in, uh, as many can imagine, shelter is still very high in demand. Uh, health uh, is is also like increasing mental health uh, provisions, sanitation, food, and water, and we can say that temporary shelters remain critical. While we have evacuated families, they have a, a warm place to stay as they figure out the, the next step that they can take. We see many families are living in temporary shelters and hygiene measures are hard to maintain. So that's a really critical element. And as I mentioned before, the psychological impacts of the quake are monumental and it will take years for the people to recover uh, and it's important already now to uh, to deal with uh, with lots of these mental issues that that people have it's a it's a big big game changer for any person to go through uh, such a, such an experience as as a, a quake like this what we're also looking at is that there is a risk of what you can call a second disaster as the health needs uh, are growing. We have seen, as I also mentioned, the earthquake caused severe disruptions uh, to sanitation and access to safe water. And that increases the risk of infectious diseases. And there can also be other complications from non-communicable diseases. Uh, and what is it is causing to have disruptions in primary healthcare services. So all this uh, combined uh, also constitutes a risk uh, for, for the people that are living in the area. So what we are like focusing is on restoring access to essential health, to sanitation and to water services to prevent outbreaks and to save lives. Thank you, Benigida. It's one thing that... Uh that you mentioned a few times, and that is the mental health aspect. And I, I have to wonder aloud, I know for years we've developed uh, capacity, global capacity to provide water, to, to work on sanitation, food, shelter. Um, and I have to wonder and ask you, do you, is there sufficient global capacity to provide mental health assistance for a disaster like this? Or is this something that we still don't have enough of yet? to really bring to bear globally. I, I, I wonder about that because it's, a, it's, a, it's something I, that is so important in the, in the aftermath of disasters like this, but I, do, we have, do, do we globally have the capacity to provide that kind of assistance that's needed in this situation? Oh, I'm 
really happy that you asked this question. Uh, it is something that I, I have, I think, for the last 20 years been really promoting and uh, and it has been a, a, a a course very true uh, close to my heart uh, because everybody is focusing on on the physical health but uh, but the mental health has has been less like acknowledged as something that was important uh, so already in 2004 when when the tsunami happened uh, we had like discussions what is most important to have mental health or, or physical health uh, when i was starting working in, in the red cross family at that time and and i think uh, since that time since the beginning of uh, of 2000 we have we have been doing a lot uh, within uh, the red cross family to build up a really solid uh, MHPSS, so mental health and psychosocial uh, capacities with many national societies. And I'm really pleased to say that uh, right now in Europe, there are 34 national societies working on uh, mental health and psychosocial uh, services in their own countries uh, related to our response in, in the Ukraine operation. But also uh, with Turkish Red Crescent, they are... Uh, they have lots of capacity in this, and and they are they have sent in a lot of their good volunteers and staff to start uh, working on this. So it's a very it's a you can say it's a niche uh, for for some NGOs and and the UN, but but uh, for for the Red Cross, it's a it's a core capacity that we always apply in this kind of situations, both in in uh, like natural disasters and anything where there is a crisis that is like life changing for the people that are affected we uh, we we prioritize to get mental health and psychosocial services in first thank you so much i'm I, it's I'm, I'm definitely glad to hear that that's those capacities exist and that they're robust enough and and back to you jamie uh you know you talk, spoke a bit earlier about how this is impacting uh President Erdogan in Turkey, and and I have to wonder what's the impact on the Assad regime in Syria. What's and in addition, what are some of the dynamics in the neighborhood that um, this earthquake may have shaken loose, or may have? You know, are there any? Are there new opportunities for cooperation? Are there new opportunities for peace, or has it complicated things? I know that's a lot to give to you, Jamie, but. <laughs> um, I, I I know you're. I know you. I, I saw your article. You wrote about this very topic a few weeks ago. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sending that to you. Uh, okay, Chris. I'll do my best to to rise to the challenge. Uh, with with Assad, it's indeed uh, interesting and complicated. He's been a pariah. Uh, since 2011, uh, after his brutal crackdown on the Arab Spring in Syria, over half a million people have been killed um, and 14 million plus uh, Syrians have been displaced. Begitta referred to the millions of them uh, that currently have been um, in, in Turkey, in southern Turkey, impacted by the earthquake as well. So this has been, a, a you know, even by the standard of uh, the wars we're seeing all around us at the moment, this has been an unspeakable tragedy. Uh, the the second part of the tragedy is, of course, that the earthquake has impacted mainly the Idlib pocket. In other words, that part of sort of northwestern Syria, which Assad has not had control over. Uh, he's been besieging it for the last uh, decade or so. Uh, but it's an enclave where the anti-Assad elements have, have uh, uh, sort of gathered um, uh, with some degree of Turkish protection. Um, and therefore, it's a double tragedy because it's people who are already sort of being uh, bombed by barrel bombs and 
uh, and artillery every day. Uh, in addition, now you know, being made homeless uh, by over five five thousand of them so far, less than in Turkey, but we don't know the the final number because we have less information than Turkey. But you know, now have been impacted by the earthquake. So if you really need to have sympathy for uh, uh, people, it, it's those people uh, there now. Um, the, the key issue here is that, of course, Assad uh, is is an astute politician. Um, and he's going to try to use this earthquake as much as possible to rehabilitate himself with the international community. And already, you know, the Saudis, who have been totally on the other side, uh, supporting the opposition throughout this conflict, have sent relief uh, supplies into Aleppo. Uh, the United Arab Emirates is playing a major role. Uh, and indeed, uh, Assad, you know, trying to sort of come out of the cold, even before the earthquake in 2022, made a visit to the United Arab Emirates. It was the only, only the second time, apart from going to Moscow, uh, that he'd been out of the country since 2011. And over the last couple of weeks, some interesting things have been happening. The Arab Interparliamentary Union has met in Damascus. Uh, the foreign ministers of Iraq, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, uh, uh, Oman, uh, the UAE, uh, uh, as well as a Palestinian delegation, have all been in Damascus. So uh, Assad, I think, is trying to sort of draw on the sort of sympathy uh, to come out of the cold. Uh, but the key question is, is that you know, if we give him lots and lots of aid, how much of this aid is he going to allow uh, to go to the Iblib pocket where it's most needed vis-a-vis -vis the other parts of North uh, northern Syria, which have been impacted. I mean, let's be honest, Chris, it, it, it hasn't been beyond asset in the past to politicize and to manipulate humanitarian aid. And he may, he may well consider that, you know, the fact that Idlib has been affected means that this is, it's now ripe uh, to be conquered uh, again, which would be a third uh, tragedy, you know, for, for the population that I, uh, on top of the two I mentioned already. Um, and so I think, you know, we the West has got to be very, very careful here. And what should it do? Well, number one is to uh, really insist that Assad um, allows these three border crossing points. One was already open and Assad allowed another two at the insistence of the United Nations to open so that relief supplies can be delivered directly into Idlib uh, over the international border from Turkey. That's fundamental because Assad in the past was saying, give me the aid in Damascus and I will distribute it. Well, you wouldn't have any confidence in that. So uh, Assad has said that those border crossing points could be open for only three months. So I think it's going to be very, very important uh, that uh, the UN, everybody else puts pressure on him that those border crossing points stay open at least for a year permanently uh, because again it's not just the, uh, as Bagitta was pointing out uh, much more expertly than I it's not just the immediate relief it, it's the long-term supplies and medical help and reconstruction help and everything that's going to be uh, required secondly don't give the aid to Assad um, he will want it uh, and bargain for it but uh, use the NGOs use the uh, you know, the UN uh, a food program and the uh, the the UN refugee agency and you, the the reputable uh, UN agencies uh, led by Martin Griffiths, of course, the Under Secretary for Humanitarian Affairs, uh, to uh, distribute the aid because they also, of course, are interlocutors uh, with uh, Damascus as as well. It's also very interesting with Russia. You know, Russia is the great 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 supporter of Assad. Uh, you know, supplying all of the weapons and having its own air force and its own. Uh, ground forces in Syria for many years, responsible for a lot of the damage. 
uh, and suddenly there's a humanitarian disaster. And where's Russia uh, when it comes to relief and uh, helping out, uh, you know, offering to deal with the consequences and so on? You know, they're interested in sort of, if, if I could be a little bit sort of provocative, Chris, but they, they, they don't seem to have any trouble sort of bombing the buildings to rubble, but they seem to have a lot of trouble uh, rebuilding the buildings uh, uh, afterwards. But um, anyway, but Syria is an interesting case, and Assad is definitely uh, hoping that earthquake diplomacy uh, can get him back into the salon uh, of international uh, diplomacy. Thank you so much, Jamie. Uh, I'll give our final question to uh, Birgitta, and that is, what lessons have we learned from this disaster, and how can we apply these lessons in the future to lessen the impact and improve our response. So over to you, Brigida. Thanks. I think I want to say maybe two important things. And uh, one of them is that uh, localization works. Uh, we have seen that volunteers and staff out of Turkish Red Crescent have been responding in the communities uh, where they're rooted. And, uh, and they have been proving that those are the ones that have the unique access to the hardest hit, hit areas from the beginning. And I think for me, this is like uh, a, nearly symbolic that we always know when, uh, when there is like a, a big uh, natural disaster that the ones who will react first uh, are the people that are living in the area. And then that brings me to the second point that preparedness and coordination is critical. And response requires like a real team effort. It, But it also requires that a lot of preparedness has happened before the disaster. Uh, of course, it was impossible to be fully ready for uh, the scale that this has. Uh, but but having people on the ground, knowing first aid, knowing how to do evacuations, knowing how to deal with people that were uh, at the brink of, uh, of uh, like totally terrified, to get them out of the building and, and bring them to a, pla a safe place, give them protection, uh, find out where the closest shelter could be. All of that is people that are local. But with preparedness, they can do a lot more. And if that preparedness is part of a, a national plan and a provincial plan, then it's much better. And that is what we are aiming to do every day within the national societies of Red Cross and Red Crescent. And I think here we have seen that that is really working. Uh, so, so those are two things that I, I really wanted to to emphasize on, on learning uh, just as we as we're here now. Uh, and then maybe I, I just also wanted to say that it's important, really important to note that most of those uh, that are now providing so much support, now with also international support and, and other streams of support, they have been affected themselves. They have lost their homes, many have lost loved ones, and they continue to provide this life-saving cares. Just with the Turkish Red Crescent, we lost 20 colleagues in the earthquake. And this has required uh, also uh, a, a support uh, to, a, a, to have an approach to support the staff and volunteers also in this area, because they are also part of the community and they are, they are part of, uh, they, they have also experienced this tragic 
tragic earthquake on their own body. But still we see that dedication to continue to support and, and to link up with now uh, both the national system and, and the international systems. And that gives a very robust uh, response on the ground. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, thank you both to our guests and to you, dear listeners, for joining us today. Please join us again next time on the Frankly Speaking podcast. <laughs>